You're listening to the audio from Tuesday Night Class at CA Church, located in Coquitlam, British Columbia. We hope this teaching helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Thank you. All right, well, welcome to uh, week two of uh, Water from a Deep Well. I hope you've had a good week. And I also had a question. I know the answer for some of you, but... uh, Some of you keeners at the end of last week said, can you give us some homework? And after I wiped some tears from my eyes of joy, um, I told you, yes, there is some homework that you can do. And did anyone do any of the homework? I know some people over here did. I don't want to point them out. Oh, online, I see some people putting up their hand. Yeah, well done. Anybody here? All right. So you read about Perpetua and Felicitas. Warms my heart. Try not to. Okay. Well, well done. We're going to talk about them tonight. Um, Powerful story. The other thing I'm going to point out, uh, just as we get started, is as many of you know, this class is based on a book by Gerald's sister, a fantastic book called Water from a Deep Well on Christian Spirituality. And so I'm modeling this class based on this book. Um, I have a handful of these books coming in and they should be here next week. And so if you're interested, let me know. You don't have to get one, but if, if you're interested, uh, I'd be happy to, uh, to put one aside for you. They're about $30, so they're not cheap, but uh, it's a really good book. And Gerald Sitzer's an excellent writer. Um, tonight, we're going to be talking about the theme of, here, right? We're going to do the theme of witness. Witness. And we're going to look at the spirituality of the early Christian martyrs. In Philippians 1.21, Paul writes, to live as Christ, to die as gain. An early church writer, a guy named Tertullian, a North African fellow, wrote these words. He says, the blood of Christians is seed. Some of you may have heard that quote, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The actual quote is, is the blood of Christians is seed. And so what does he mean by that? Well, we'll talk about that tonight. So you and I will never fully understand Christian spirituality unless we understand something about martyrdom. And to the early Christians, and not just to the early Christians, but to Christians around the world today, um, it is understood that martyrdom, death, the ultimate price for your faith, is a real possibility. And this should not come as a surprise. It's interesting that often in the West, we are surprised when we read about martyrdom and we hear stories of martyrdom. Um, But it shouldn't come as a surprise because we're warned quite a bit about this in the pages of Scripture. Um, This is something that that Jesus taught. Uh, And this is what Paul taught. Does someone have um, a Bible handy? Okay, could someone look up uh, Matthew chapter 5 verse, and read out uh, verse 11 to 12? So I'll have an embodied person do that. And then let's have a cyber person um, read Matthew chapter 10, verses 16 to 18 and, tw- and verse 22. Okay, I'll turn you guys up so we can hear. Okay, so Matthew chapter 5, verse 11, 12. Who's got that one? Okay, go ahead. Now. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. 
same way the persecution Excellent. Thank you. Uh, Matthew chapter 10. Does somebody online want to read that out? I'll turn you up really loud. We'll make Kevin do it. He just comes on now. Uh, anybody? Don't make this awkward. Just put up your hand very quickly if you can do it. Okay, I'm going to pick somebody. All right, Ken Burgess. All right, thanks, man. Read her out. Are you there, Ken? Oh, but you're muted. <laughs> That's the problem. Okay, there we go. There we go. Yeah, I can hear you. All right, read it. Um, so Matthew 10, 16 to 18, and then verse, 20, verse 22. I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and be flogged in the synagogues. On my account, you'll be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. And verse 20? Verse 22. Uh, 22. Yeah, verse 22, yeah. You will be hated by everyone because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Excellent. Thank you. Um, somebody read 2 Timothy um, 3.12. Can somebody read that one as soon as you find it? Somebody here in person? As soon as you find it, read it out. Well. Excellent. Everyone who wants to lead a godly life will be persecuted. Very good. Um, one last one. Um, can somebody read First um, Peter chapter four, verses twelve and thirteen, and verse sixteen as well? <laughs> All right. Thanks, Mike. <laughs> Can somebody read that one? Somebody got it? Oh, sorry. It's um I said first Peter chapter four, verses twelve and thirteen. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. Thanks, Janice. Very good. And verse 16. Okay, very good. So this is this is awesome. I mean, and this is really important because all throughout the Bible, we're warned that if you faithfully follow Jesus, it's not going to be that easy for you. I mean, Jesus warns us, right? In John chapter 16, verse 33, he says, in this world, you will have what? You'll have trials or you'll have trouble. Absolutely. Um, if you read the book of Revelation, the whole story of Revelation takes place within the context of severe persecution and um, increasing pressure from the Roman Empire. And so as we dive into this exploration on witness, we need to remember that persecution, suffering, and death were part of the Christian life right from the get-go, right from the get-go. And we, and I mean, we see this in, in, in what happens to Jesus and being arrested and being beaten and being tortured and being crucified on a Roman cross. 
And so the center of our faith stands what? A, a, a picture of suffering. And it's, it's a, a brutal picture of suffering. I mean, the Roman cross was, was, a, was a brutal instrument of torture. So this is what Gerald Sitzer says in his book. He says, discipleship implies suffering, leads to persecution, tests metal, demands steadfastness, requires endurance, and even leads to death. It demands that we confess Jesus as Lord. And so let's pray as we dive into this. Jesus, this is, you tell us that to follow you or to deny ourselves, to take up our cross and to follow you. You warn us that in this world, we will have trouble and trials. Your word reminds us of this and warns of this over and over again. And so this is integral to the life of discipleship. And so we pray that you would guide us in our conversation tonight. May all that we do, may we do it with an eye to honoring you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, persecution and martyrdom, um, again, they're daily realities in many parts of the world. If you live in Xinjiang in China, and you are a Christian, it's not going to be easy for you. If you live in Hubei or if you live in, in certain parts of Nigeria, um, it's not going to go well with you. If you live in certain parts of the Middle East and you're a follower of Jesus, you're in, the, in, in Indonesia, in, in atheists or, 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 or Muslim nations, it's, it's going to be quite difficult. Uh, and martyrdom is a, is a daily reality. And you read about these deaths. And, you know, and, and when I read about, you know, martyrdom, I have to be honest, uh, it doesn't make me want to become a martyr. <laughs> uh, when I read about people burning alive, I'm like, I don't know how I would do in that. I don't think I'd hold up very well under torture or anything like that. Um, the idea of being burned alive or being killed is not attractive to me. So... Why are we looking at this? Well, I think the stories of witness, the stories of persecution can stir in us courage. It can stir in us a desire to honor, to speak out for Jesus in all circumstances. And again, in Canada, the chances of, of us being killed for our faith is pretty slim. Um, the chances of us, of us being arrested for our faith is increasing by the day. Um, and I'm serious about that. But what we can maybe learn from these early martyrs is this, is not so much you know, how to die like the way they die, but maybe how we can live for Jesus, what it means to live for Christ. And so it leads us to an important question that I want to ask you as we dive into this. In our prayers, in our hopes, and our desires, should we long for persecution in Canada? Or should we long for peace for the church in the West? Let me, that's a real question I'm asking you. What do you guys think? You guys online? You guys in person? We can hear you online. So uh, I think you have to unmute yourself if you're going to say something. What do you think? Should we long for persecution? No. 
<laughs> I don't like persecution. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You say yes. Why would you say yes, Mo? Okay. It takes struggle for us to change and for us to grow. Uh, that's good. Yeah. Pray for peace, but prepare for persecution. That's good, Barry. Yeah, I like that. I'm going to see. I know I forgot that you guys like to write. Um, it would increase our trust and reliance in Jesus. Well done, Joseph. Yeah. Eileen, <laughs> no thanks for persecution. Um, yeah. Don't worry. As some of you are saying, you, you can't hear the embodied people in the sanctuary. If there's a comment or a question, I will repeat it. Don't worry. Um, it's a big question. I know in, 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 uh, we've had missionaries in different parts of the world, and their comment to us, their comment to Western Christians is, you know what, we're praying that you guys will experience what we're experiencing, because this has made our faith come alive. Uh, yeah, but it's, it's, it's an interesting question. What I'd like to do is, uh, in our time together, I mean, we're going to do two things. We're going to look a little bit at uh, martyrdom in the early church. So I'm going to give you kind of a thumbnail sketch of two centuries worth of martyrdom. And then we're going to look at some principles. What can we gather out of how the church experienced and navigated its way through martyrdom in the second and the third century? Does that sound okay? Some of you have taken my class some of you have taken my class on Destroyer of the Gods. You'll know that, you know, this is something that we've talked about before. Um, but we are going to look at the forces that threatened um, the Christian church in the second and third century. We're going to look at how uh, the church gave witness uh, in difficult circumstances. And one of the challenges that the church faced in the second and third century was not just arrest and being burned and being killed and being threatened and physical. They experienced a lot of psychological pressure and a lot of philosophical pressure. Um, there was a handful of people, really smart people, that took on Christian thinking and ridiculed it. Uh, some of the people that come to mind are a guy, a guy named Celsus, who, who had a very, very sharp pen or quilt, or whatever he wrote with, um, and really, and he would take, he would go after Christians big time, uh, another guy named Porfiry, he, same thing, a guy named Galen, uh, these guys go after Christianity, and they're brilliant men, and Christians are forced to respond, and in a lot of places uh, in the early church, it wasn't so much that uh, Christians were being arrested, or anything like that, but they felt the pressure of society of being strange people not fitting in and all that goes with that and we talked a little bit about that when we were walking through uh first peter um last semester so but we're going to talk um about the full-on physical persecution against the early church now it's a bit surprising that the roman empire went after the christians it is a bit surprising because the Roman Empire was notorious for being quite tolerant towards other religions. It's unlike, you know, other empires. The, the Roman Empire was, was pretty tolerant towards other religions. They're like, hey, do whatever you want. But the thing for the Roman Empire, what mattered, what mattered um, 
was that, okay, you could worship, you know, Michael, you could worship whatever God you want. Just make sure you acknowledge, you know, like the, uh, the civic gods, right? The, the, the Roman gods, the, the gods that are kind of associated with the, the Roman empire. Make sure that you acknowledge that as well. Um, and so, but if you wanted to worship whatever God you wanted to do on your own time, no big deal. It's fine with me. Okay. So the issue became, the, or the question became, what is it about Christianity that really annoyed the Romans? <laughs> what is it about Christianity that really eventually got the Romans' attention and said, look, we got to do something about these guys? Well, um, here's, here's a hint. Here's, here's something that you need to, to, uh, to, to realize. What ticked off the Romans about the Christians is the very same thing that ticks off secular authorities about Christians today. There's a lot of similarities. And uh, let's see if you agree. First off, let's, let's do a, a brief history of persecution. Um, the first bit of persecution that the church faced um, takes place just before 100 AD. And that comes from the emperor Nero. Have you heard of Nero? Yes, Nero, who, uh, who reigned from 56 AD to 68 AD. Now, the thing about Nero is that he was a few laurel leaves short of a wreath. I thought that was pretty funny when I wrote it today. Uh, <laughs> he, was, he, was not, he was not quite there. Did you guys all like that one? Yeah. <laughs> Um, he was he was he was a bit off. He was a bit off. And and if you're a dictator and you're a bit off, that's dangerous. Um, the historian um, Tacitus he records that uh, there's a persecution against the Christians, and this happened when um, there was this fire that broke out in Rome, and it's thought that Nero was the guy who was actually behind the fire, but everybody's mad. And so he finds a scapegoat. Now the scapegoat, typically someone you, you choose to blame and people get on board is usually a, a group in society that most people hate anyhow. So you have to realize that there's no sense of making a scapegoat group of people that everybody likes. Uh, the scapegoat that he makes, he says, oh, you know who caused this fire is the Christians. It was the Christians that caused this fire. So we should go after them. And so we read uh, Tacitus. I have it in your notes. I have a quote from Tacitus, a historian. He says, but all human efforts and all the lavish gifts of the emperor and all the propitiations of the gods did not banish the sinister belief that the conflagration of the fire was a result of an order. Consequently, to get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations. Listen to that. This group of people, they're called Christians by the populace. Now, Christus, from whom the name had its or origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our pure creators, uh, uh, procurators, uh, Pontius Pilate. And a most mischievous superstition thus checked for the moment again broke out, not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world 
find their center and become popular. Accordingly, an arrest was first made of those who pleaded guilty. Then upon information, an immense multitude was convicted. So they tortured one Christian who, uh, and then they arrested others. Not so much for the crime of, of firing the city as, well, interesting, as of hatred against mankind. These Christians are blamed for having a hatred against mankind. Mockery of every sort was added to their deaths, covered with skins of beasts. They were torn by dogs and perished or were nailed to crosses or were, I lost the last part, they were, they were um, hung on crosses, covered in pitch, lit on fire to illuminate um, dinner parties that Nero would put on. So these burning Christians would illuminate the dinner parties. Interesting thing in that, and we've talked about this before, but this is just, this is, this is strange. This is a very early writing. This is, you know, Tacitus is, is a very early church historian, um, uh, not church historian, a uh, Roman historian. And he's talking about this guy named Jesus and what Jesus had done. And he had died under the hands of Pontius Pilate. Now, the reason why this is just kind of interesting from a historical perspective is that I often hear people say, well, nobody even knows when Jesus existed. There's no proof. There's no evidence. Well, this is evidence outside the Bible that makes reference to Jesus and what had happened to him. Anyhow, this persecution was pretty intense, but it was mostly focused in Rome. Make sure I'm not missing anything. Um, mostly focused in Rome. And it was believed that it was during this persecution that both uh, Peter and Paul died. They were, they were um, killed during this persecution. So that's the first one. And so what happens after this is uh, there, there becomes a general hatred of Christians. And Christians are sporadically um, attacked, not by necessarily by the empire, but by mobs of people. And uh, to which uh, a fellow named Tertullian, who we've all also, uh, he's a, a lawyer from North Africa, uh, he says these words, it's quite interesting, <laughs> it's kind of quite funny. He says, you know what, if the Tiber, which is a river, if the Tiber reaches the walls, if the Nile does not rise to the fields, if the sky does not move, or if the earth does, if there's famine, if there's plague, they cry at once, the Christians to the lions. He's like, man, anything that goes wrong, guess who's getting blamed? The Christians, right? And so that was the first one. The, the next bit of persecution that takes place takes place under a guy named Domitian, an emperor named Domitian, who in many ways was quite a good emperor. Like he was a, a, an effective emperor. The only thing was about Domitian is that he was pretty obsessed with himself. Um, he wanted to be addressed as my Lord and my God, right? So which apparently annoyed some people within the Roman aristocracy is like, dude, who do you think you are? But I don't think they actually said that to him, but, um, but Domitian, Domitian carried out uh, reprisals against his enemies, but he also starts to go after those who are Christians. Now, it's interesting. Okay, this is just history stuff. It's fun. Um, there seems to be a shift. There seems to be a shift from these leaders. They start suddenly noticing Christianity. Why do they suddenly notice Christianity? Well, it seems as if the fact is, is that Christians, you start seeing Christians higher up in society. Some aristocrats, some, some leaders in society are embracing Christianity. And so if you're 
an emperor, if you're high up within the Roman Empire, you're like, what? So-and-so, you know, well, one of my colleagues is, is a Christian? That's so strange. And so then they start going after some of the people higher up in society who had embraced Christianity. Um, Domitian, uh, 90, um, in, uh, Domitian, he persecuted um, Jews and Christians. Uh, he kind of goes after both of them. And uh, the whole story of Domitian and the persecution that he carries out would form the backdrop to the book of Revelation. So if you're reading the book of Revelation, you're wondering what's going on with John. Why is he stuck on, 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 on Patmos? And what has happened to the leadership in the church? What kind of stuff is John going under? That God in his grace gives him this beautiful revelation of Jesus Christ by Jesus Christ. Why did God give him this revelation? It's to help him navigate his way through the persecution under Domitian. Okay, that's the background. Okay? You guys with me so far? All right? Okay, the other uh, emperor that we look at is a guy named uh, Trajan. And this, under Trajan, you come across the first organized persecution, um, which actually brings Christians into court and, being, and, and they start persecuting Christians in court. And um, one of the interesting um, stories we have on this is a story uh, of a governor in, a guy, in, a, in, in, in Turkey um, a guy named Pliny the Younger, uh, and he writes a letter to Trajan, and he asks him for some advice as what to do with these Christians. Now, the issue is, does anybody remember what the issue is? For those who take my other class, do you remember what the issue was? Why does, um, why does Pliny, somebody comes and complains to Pliny. Somebody insists that. Close, they're not buying meat. Uh, meat sales have dropped. Uh, because nobody was buying meat to sacrifice or, 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 or animals, I guess, uh, to sacrifice to the local pagan gods. And so the economy was being affected. And I think, yeah, I think idolatry and, and the whole pagan industry was being affected because a lot of people were becoming Christians. And so you have these, these um, people who are part of a union of, of, you know, of, of meat suppliers, Packer, what are they called? They call the Packer? Yeah, anyhow, uh, some, some union, and they come up to Pliny and they say, hey, our business is being wrecked because this wonky group of people called Christians, they're saying, you don't need to sacrifice to these gods anymore. You're our MP, you do something about this, right? And so uh, Pliny's like, okay, well, he writes a letter to Trajan, and I think what Pliny's doing when writing to Trajan is sort of, you know, hey, Emperor Trajan, I need your advice. This is what I did. Do you think that's a good idea? He's kind of like, you know, that kind of um, underling. Anyhow, he's trying to get on Trajan's good side, I think. But in, in this, he tells a story. He says, um, let me tell you a little bit about this group of people. They're called Christians. And what do they do? Well, we know this. They, as they were wont on a stated day, they meet together before the sun comes up and they sing a hymn to Christ as to a God. Alternately, they oblige themselves by a sacrament or oath not to do anything that was ill, that they would commit no theft or pilfering or adultery. They would not break their promises or deny what was deposited on them was required back again, after which their custom is to depart to meet again at a common but innocent meal. So he's describing these Christians, but we can actually learn quite a bit about the practice of the early Christians. And he says, what I did is I found these two women. 
uh, they were deaconesses, they were leaders in the church, and I discovered um, that they were addicted to this bad and extravagant superstition, i.e. Christianity. And so I examined them uh, under torture. <laughs> and, um, yeah, and, and he, um, he, uh, he talks, talks to them and he finds out what they're up to, what these Christians have been doing. And then we're not quite sure what he does, but he does something. And he reports back to Trajan and he says, just so you know, the problem is solved. Emperor Trajan, I, Governor Pliny, have solved the problem in case you're looking for somebody to promote. Um, you get that sense. Uh, he says, our meat sales have bounced back. Well, because he had killed a bunch of Christians and arrested a bunch of them, right? And so there's this dialogue between uh, him and Trajan about these Christians. But it was during Trajan, the, the Emperor Trajan, that um, a fellow named Ignatius of Antioch um, was martyred. Now, Ignatius of Antioch is a very interesting fellow. He gets arrested. He's one of the leaders in the church. Very early on, the early 100s, he gets arrested and he gets taken in the back of a paddy wagon, basically, a Roman paddy wagon. And he's on his way to Rome to be thrown in to be eaten up by wild animals, killed by wild animals. But the interesting thing is, is that Ignatius, he writes a bunch of letters. And I don't know how he does it, but he writes all these letters while he's en route to Rome. And there's like, there's people running behind the paddy wagon and he's like throwing, give this to the church in Ephesus, give this church, you know, he's, he's, he's handing out letters and messages to different churches. And we actually have those letters. We actually have the letters. It's really interesting. Now, one thing, and I've shared this before, it's super geeky and it might be conjecture, but I think it's kind of interesting, is that in one of the letters, I think it's a letter to the church in Ephesus, they make reference to a bishop in Ephesus. And do you know what his name is? Let's see if any of you guys know. Do you guys know what his name is? He makes reference to this, to this bishop. You guys know? The bishop he refers to is called, his name is Onesimus. Now, where have we come across that name before? What's that from? Which book is it from? Philemon. He was a slave. And the whole story that Paul writes, you know, to Philemon, take him back. I know, you know, take him back. The slave, he's now your brother, you know, encourage him. Could it be? Because the, the, the dates kind of work out. If, if Onesimus was a young man and we figure out when Philemon was written, that he could have been an older man and risen to the position of bishop in Ephesus. Anyhow, there's thought that that might be the guy. Anyhow, it's, it's, it's again, it's just kind of geeky history stuff, but I think that's kind of fun. Um, the next one, the next one, everybody writes Philemon, well done. Um, the next one is Marcus Aurelius from the movie Gladiator. You guys might remember that. Uh, well, Marcus Aurelius, he's a, uh, he's a philosopher emperor, and, uh, but he doesn't like Christians very much. And uh, there's a fellow named Justin, Justin Martyr, unfortunate last name, um, but no, he's just a martyr. And he's killed in Rome under Marcus Aurelius, um, Bishop Polycarp, a disciple of John was also mar martyred under Marcus Aurelius. Now, why is that important? 
this guy named Polycarp was martyred. He was killed under this emperor. The reason why it's so important is that Polycarp represents the last living connection to the apostles because he was a disciple of John. And so that's the last living connection. And Justin Martyr tells a story under Marcus Aurelius where um, two men get arrested and their names are Carpus and Papilus. And they're both brought to the governor of Pergamum and the charge against them is that they were Christian. When told to worship the Roman gods, Carpus replied, I am a Christian. I honor Christ, the Son of God, who has come into latter times to save us and has delivered us from the madness of the devil. I will not sacrifice to these devils. And though tortured, he did not change his mind. He instead, he kept repeating over and over again, I am a Christian, I am a Christian, I am a Christian. And the governor turns to his buddy, to, to, to Papilus, and he says, and, and Papilus says, I have served God since my youth. I've never sacrificed to idols. I am a Christian. You cannot learn anything else from me. There is nothing I can say which is greater or more wonderful than this. Isn't that interesting? They're just like, I am a Christian. I don't care what you say. I don't care what you do. I am a Christian. And we read that they were both burnt alive. Now, again, around this time, we find the emperors trying to reimpose this idea of emperor worship. And so what you find happening around this time is you have emperors coming into power saying, you know what, I want to get into this whole God thing. And so let's say I'm a God. Um, see, it didn't work with Marcus Aurelius because he died from a plague. And so it kind of makes a lousy God if he died from a plague. Um, but other people, they said, you know, let's get into this whole thing. And here's the thing. If I'm an emperor, and you want to participate in society? Well, then you have to do something before you can participate in society. And so everybody was given a QR code. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, no, okay. Uh, no, I'm just totally kidding. Totally kidding. We'll strike that off. <laughs> everybody was given. They had to do a, um, they were given, they had to give proof that they had worshipped the Roman God. They had to give proof. And so one of the guys that, uh, and, and so what, uh, they had to give proof. And the other thing they would have to do is if they went into the marketplace, they would have to take a pinch of incense and they burn it and say the words, Kaiser at Curious, Caesar's Lord, right? Which is difficult for Christians to do. And then they get a big persecution under a person named um, Septimus Severus. Apparently he was from Slytherin House. No, he, doesn't he sound like someone from Harry Potter? <laughs> Septimus Severus. And in 202 AD, he actually makes a big decision. And the decision is this. He forbade conversion to Christianity. So you could not convert to Christianity under penalty of severe punishment. And Christians were rounded up by local you know, police and and they'd be in, in trouble, right? Um, now, it's, it's also in, uh, let me see, I think I have, I'm missing something here. Because there's under Septimus Severus, 
that we come across um, our story of Felicitas and Perpetua. Oh, we'll, we'll get to it. We'll get to it in a second. Yeah. But that's where that takes place under the, that, that persecution. From 250 onwards, you get universal persecution. Now, as the years go by, the persecution level heats up. It's sporadic. It's not constant, but it's sporadic. But there comes a point where the Roman Empire looks around and says, you know what? These Christians are a problem. There's a little too many of them now. And it's interesting because from the years 250 to the year 300, so 50 years, the percentage of Christians in Roman society grew. And it grew from being 2% of the population to being 11% of the population. That's a big growth, right? You figure there's, I think there's about... Um, is it about 30 million, 35 million people in the Roman? So you have Christians are starting to make up significant numbers. And once the Roman Empire realized these Christians are a threat, look at their numbers, it was too late. It was too late, really, to, uh, to, to get rid of them. But they tried. And so you have this guy, one of this emperor, one of the emperors that comes on the scene is a guy named Decius. And Decius offered certificates called uh, um, libellus. And that was, you had to offer proof that you worshipped the Roman gods. That you, not just the Roman gods, you also had to say that you acknowledge and you worship the genius of the emperor, that the emperor is also divine. And there's no more hiding. You had to have this. You had to have proof. <laughs> That's why I say the QR. But in some ways, it's, it's like you had to show proof that you've participated in this. Otherwise, you can't participate in society. What's worse, you would also just, you could be arrested, right? And so for every Christian in the empire, whether it be a soldier, a slave, man, woman, child, it came down, they had a choice. They had a choice. This day, who will you serve? Will you serve Caesar or will you serve Christ? And this, can you imagine? Like, I am... I am being somewhat cheeky about, you know, the QR codes and, and what's going on. But there are some similarities in the sense that this situation in the third century divided families. Divided, it divided Christians. It was very, very divisive because you had people within um, one household, right? So you got, you know, you got Bruce and you got Janice. I'll pick on you guys. And Bruce is like, hey, it's no big deal. It's no big deal. In my heart, I'm not worshiping Caesar, you know, whatever. I'll, you know, I'll burn the incense and blah, blah, blah. Caesar's curious. Yeah, I don't believe in G I don't believe in Caesar, but I'm going to do this because it allows me to go shopping, allows me to participate in society. And Janet's like, well, you're kind of giving in though, right? How can you with good integrity do that? And then there's, and so you had families that were split over this. But I give you in your notes an example of what the certificate looks like. Um, or what was actually written on the certificate. And it says this, he goes to the, here's an example from 250 AD, to the commissioners of sacrifice of the village of Alexander's Island from uh, Aurelius Diogenes, the son of Sabatus of the village of Alexander's Island, age 72 years old. So this is 
his identification, scar on his right eyebrow. Isn't that interesting? That's how you know he is. He's got a scar on his right eyebrow. And so he has to say, I have always, I have always sacrificed regularly to the gods. And now in your presence, in accordance with the edict, I have done sacrifice and poured the drink offering and tasted of the sacrifices. And I request you to certify me. Farewell. Handed in by me, by Aurelius Diogenes. I certify blah, blah, blah. You know, Emperor Decius. You know, and it's, it's, an, it's, a, it's a legal document that he could now show and say, look, I've done what I needed to do in order to be part of society. But a lot of Christians says we can't do that. We can't do that. And when they said we couldn't do that, they got into a lot of trouble. There's a lot of persecution that takes place at this time. And it leads up to the biggest persecution under a fellow named Diocletian in the late 200s. And it was the worst in many ways. It was a systematic attempt to destroy Christianity. But it was carried out too late. Again, Christianity had grown at that point. Um, Diocletian, again, he had a, a God complex. He thought, you know, I'm like God. You need to come worship me. If anyone refused, if everyone refused, they were killed. They were just hunted down and killed. During this time, uh, churches were burned to the ground. Scriptures were burned, destroyed. Um, if you persisted in your Christian faith, you'd be in deep trouble. And this persecution keeps up right up until 313 AD. Now, here's the thing. During this worst persecution, the church grew the fastest. By the end, by the time you get to 350 AD, the Christians make up 50% of the Roman Empire. 50%. So the church spread rapidly in heavy persecution. Now, I want to talk about why, what we can learn from their experience in this, in their experience of persecution. But before I do that, let me just pause for a moment. That was a whirlwind tour through the highs and lows of persecution in the uh, first couple centuries. Any questions, comments? Online, if you have any questions, we can hear you. We have your, I have the volume turned up, I think. There, now we can hear you. Yeah. Good. Okay. So uh, Merle's asking the question, where do we get these percentages from? It's done by the work. There's a number of sociologists who looked at, you know, whatever evidence you can find from this time period and have estimated the percentage of Christians in different places. And so one guy, one source that I'll tell you that I draw from is a sociologist named Rodney Stark. And in his book, The Rise of Christianity, he unpacks where he thinks the, the numbers were, where they're concentrated uh, in, and how they most likely grew. So that's where I'm drawing it from. Yeah. Great question, though. Yeah. Yeah. Susan. Yeah, well, we'll see. We'll see. We'll, we'll, we'll look at what caused the growth and then we'll talk together, see what caused the growth. It, yeah, it is a big question. Well, yeah. I mean, one of the reasons why the church grew, 
one of the reasons why the church going well, this isn't in the notes but this is something we've talked before but the, there's there's two there's two incidents over these centuries two main incidents where the church spiked in numbers do you know what happened in those two incidents you know you know what happened plagues yeah two plagues that took place um one took place um in i believe it was 160 ad and the other one was in 250 around 251 um one was the plague of gallon the first uh evidence of smallpox and the second plague was probably measles <laughs> i was teaching a class on monday and they're all you know they're all young um gen z or whatever um and uh, I said, has anybody here ever had measles before? And they're like, they're like, what's measles? <laughs> I'm like, well, we all had measles growing up. Yeah, anyhow. Uh, but measles was quite dangerous at one point. Um, apparently, that was the behind the second plague. But I'll also say is how Christians responded in the middle of a crisis was huge. Because instead of running for the hills and hiding until the plague was done, and these plagues wiped out anywhere between a quarter and a third of the entire Roman Empire. These are huge plagues um, that lasted. First one lasted 15 years. I think the last one lasted seven years. These are long plagues. A lot of people die. So what the difference was is rather than running away and hiding in the countryside, which a lot of people did, including priests, pagan priests, Christians stuck around. And, and there is some thought that we've talked about this before, but by offering a blanket, offering touch, water and care, the chances of a person recovering increases by 30%. And so you had, and these Christians cared for not just their own, they cared for the pagans to the point where you have some pagan leaders telling their priests to get their tails back into town because these Christians are out carrying us, right? Um, but right after each of the plagues, the church spiked in terms of numbers. So we, we, that's not in my nose, but that's, that's just something that uh, came out of this. Any other questions, comments? Okay, well, let's look at, I'm going to look at four reasons. Four reasons why the early Christians were persecuted. Because I think that tells us a little bit in terms of how we are to live our lives. First reason is this, Christian, Christians were a peculiar people. They're an odd bunch. And pagans considered Christianity a strange and threatening foreign cult. Remember, they're haters of humanity, we were told. Uh, this Christian religion was a foreign religion, making inroads into Roman society. I mean, where's it from? Well, apparently it's from, you know, I don't know, Palestine, some backwater corner of the Roman Empire. Well, what's it doing in Rome? You know, what are these guys doing here? And um, this was concerning for the Romans. Because to the Romans, these Christians were just an odd bunch. And they were atheists. That's the worst part. These Christians are atheists. To the Romans, they were atheists because they did not worship the civic gods, right? And they couldn't be trusted. What happens if we get invaded? These Christians, you don't know what they're going to do. We don't know if we can trust them to help. And so the church was increasingly viewed with suspicion. So here's an example of it. Uh, one of the places where you see this huge outbreak of persecution takes place in Lyon, in uh, modern-day France. So um, this great, this huge martyrdom that takes place in Gaul—that's where it would be. 
Um, we read that the Martyrs of Lyon tells the story of the gruesome deaths of a number of Christians living in Lyon, a city in Gaul, modern day France. It's a long account. Actually, I've read the account. It is a long account, but it's quite fascinating. But what we know is about 177 AD, an angry, resentful group of pagans began to abuse Christians living in Lyon. And we read, um, I believe it's uh, Justin Martyr. Is it Justin Martyr Rices? Um, yeah, I think so. Um, it, we read, the adversary swooped down with full force, the account reads, inciting the mob to beat, stone, and imprison them. Eventually, a government leader leveled charges against them. Christians, these Christians, and here's the charge against them. These Christians, one, participate in orgies. Two, they practice cannibalism. Three, they indulge in incest. Right? So why would they say that? You guys, we've talked about this before. Why would they say that? Why would they say they practice their orgies? Yeah, or maybe, maybe they heard, maybe they heard these Christians, apparently they're having a love feast. We know what that means, right? Right? And you can see, you know, they, they, because they're not part of the church, but they're hearing rumors. And maybe they, they go to a house church and, and somebody puts their ear up against the door and, and they're listening and they're like, huh, you know what they're doing? They're, e they're eating the body and the blood of somebody right now. Oh, that's so gross. They're probably cannibals. What, what else are they doing? Huh. They're, they're kissing, each, kissing each other, but they're calling each other brother and sister? What kind of weird cult is this? That's, that's most likely what's going on. They're misunderstanding the love feast, communion, greeting each other with a holy kiss, calling each other brother and sister in Christ. Most likely that's what's going on. Prison guards began to beat and torture the Christian prisoners, hoping to force them to deny that they were Christian, but no one would compromise. To the contrary, some who had initially denied their faith to spare their lives later stepped forward and admitted that they were Christian. Some people said, no, I'm not part of Christian. Once they saw what the Christians were doing, like, yeah, no. I am part of this group, which infuriated the officials even more. Day after day, the abuse continued and deaths began to mount up. One man, a person named uh, Pothinus, bore the indignities with unusual courage and serenity, considering his age, because he was 90 years old. And he was brought to the tribunal by the soldiers, accompanied by civil magistrates and an entire mob who raised all sorts of shouts at him as, as though he were Christ himself, but he gave a noble witness. And there were miracles as well. Those who did survive the torture and deprivation in prison were sent to the arena where they were torn apart by beasts or killed by a gladiator's sword. But even there, the martyrdom, not even there could martyrdom silence them. Their, their, um, their courage actually inspired a lot of people. In fact, one of the greatest leaders thinkers in the church 
came out of Lyon and his name is um, Irenaeus. Yeah. And Irenaeus is the one who says, you know, the glory of God is a human being fully alive. Okay. So these Christians, they were seen as a strange bunch. So let's, let's pause here. <laughs> Are Christians seen as a strange bunch today? Oh, let's not, let's, let's personalize it. Are you a strange person? <laughs> Like when people look at you, do they see something different about you? Even different to the point that it might even be annoying. Or do you blend? I've said this before, but it's really hard to be a cool Christian. Try as we might, it's hard to be. The moment we start taking communion and saying this is the body and this is the blood of Jesus. And, and we, I mean, it's just, it's weird. The moment we gather on a Sunday morning and we stand and we worship and we sing together, that's weird. Who does that? Right? I, sometimes I think as Christians, we try to blend in so much. But these, these early Christians, they, they, they stood out. They stood out. Secondly, the Christians lived differently. That's another thing. They lived, lived differently from others. And the pagans resented the way Christian, the Christian way of life implicitly judged Roman society. So let me ask you this question, because uh, I've been talking quite a bit. Uh, I won't have you break into groups. I want to hear from you. Have you ever met someone that when you saw how they lived their life, um, it convicted you. It convicted you. It made you look at your own life going, Ugh. and deep down, there's a desire to be more like this person. Have you ever had that experience in your life? And if so, do you want to share briefly about what that was like? So when you see them praise, like, I wish I could pray like that. Okay. Yeah. And it brings convictions like, boy, what is my prayer life like? Yeah, absolutely. Anyone else? Yeah, Brenda Granados, yeah, from Mexico. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, Sharon's talking about um, uh, Brenda, who uh, who often comes to our church and she interprets for Pastor Tomas, and just her courage. It's it is kind of intimidating. It's like, wow, you're not afraid of anything. Yeah. And she's got a real wonderful countenance. But she's fiery and strong too. Yeah, absolutely. Angie, you're gonna say something. Your uncle. Yeah. 
Very good. So Angie was talking about her uncle and just an incredible faith that he that is on display all the time. And it just really resonates and challenges you as well in your own faith. Good. How about one of you cyber people? Does anybody want to say something? I don't want to leave you guys out. Come on. There's <laughs> a phone. Check the notes. I don't know. What's that? Check the notes. Check the chat. Oh, check the notes. Yeah, that makes me read. All right, right. Okay, meeting and working alongside pastors in Mexico and Turkey. Okay, very good. The Christians that I met that brought me to the Lord. Somebody was inspired by Philemon. No, that's a previous conversation. No. Okay. No, that's good. Well, I remember the guy who led me to Christ was the guy that he had, the way he lived really bugged me. He re it really bugged me. And um, I made a point. I made a point to, uh, to make fun of him to other people. Like I talked to, uh, to students that I was teaching. This is when I was living in China. This guy, he, he lived such, a, um, such an amazing life. And deep down, I wish I could live that way. But my, my reaction was to just try to tear him down in front of other people. But deep down, I wanted to be like him. And eventually, he led me to Christ. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's one of the things we see with these Christians. The pagans resented because the way these Christians lived, it kind of brought, um, brought judgment against Roman society, uh, made people uncomfortable um, because these, these Christians, they were focused on life to come. I mean, that was why it was so, they were so powerful during these plagues because the, the, the Roman philosophy, the Roman religion offered no hope if you died. There's no hope. There's no, there's nothing. And these Christians are saying, look, here's the thing. These plagues, people are dying. You know, in Rome, 5,000 people a day were dying in Rome in the second plague. 5,000 you know, bodies just uh, heaped up on the streets. But these Christians would come up to people dying with the plague, and they were often going to get the plague as well. But they would say, here's the thing. The one we worship has defeated death. And so you don't need to be afraid of dying. Because he's gone ahead of it. And what's more, the God we worship understands your suffering. He's not some Roman God far, far away and doing nothing. He, he gets suffering and he's defeated death. You put your faith in him. Even though this plague kills you, you will live forever. That spoke volumes. But it also convicted a lot of Romans. Um, it, it convicted uh, Roman forms of entertainment. The Roman games, theater, arena, were all seen as corrupt. And the Romans saw this, and they resented Christians for how the Christian community separated themselves. They wouldn't go to the arena. They wouldn't participate in these games. Uh, and so what does, what does they, one of them call it? They said, well, these Christians, they're haters of humanity. Man, they don't want to have any fun. They're not participating in Roman life. They're haters of humanity. And one of the powerful stories, which you read this week, is the story of Perpetua and Felicitas. And before I tell the story, for those who haven't uh, read the story, um, for those of you who did read it, what stood out? That was a homework last week, if, you, if you're just tuning in this week for the first week. Yeah. 
She was 22, yeah. Yeah, she was 22 when her own father came and tried to dissuade her from, from choosing this path of martyrdom. Um, you know, she, she, did, she, she stood her ground. And she had a baby. Yeah, it's, it's pretty intense. What, what else stood out? Her courage. Was there a particular moment that, that you really saw that? on display or that that resonated with you when she told her father yeah yeah it is what it is yeah yeah so the the story of perpetua and felicitas i mean they they are martyred during um the time of um of um, the Emperor Severus. And they're young, as Carlin said, they're, they're quite young. They're in, the, in their early 20s. Uh, Perpetua was uh, from a wealthy, uh, was the daughter of a wealthy farmer. Um, and they, they, they get arrested for their Christian faith. And the father wants her to recant, wants her to recant, but she will not. And she has a vision. It's kind of interesting. It's not just there's a, there's a group of them that all get arrested. But she has this vision. And it's an interesting vision. I don't know if you guys read that part about this vision. And it showed a ladder reaching up to heaven. Which she was able to climb up even though there was a dragon guarding it. And when she arrived at the top, she faces this beautiful garden. And thousands dressed in white robes. And when she woke, she told her brother, she goes, you know what? We're going to die for our faith. I've been given a vision. And Perpetua kept a diary. And what is fascinating, just from a historical perspective, it's the only time you see a written account by a woman in, 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 in classical literature and in, in, in um, ancient literature. And so she keeps a diary and she describes what's going on leading up to her martyrdom, which is quite powerful. And she describes how her and her friends and her family, they supported one, one another in community. She had given birth to a baby and hands her baby over to her brother. Uh, later on, her father is seen holding the baby and pleading with her daughter to recant from her, her faith. And then at this point, the diary is taken over by an eyewitness. And it describes the scene. The, um, the group of them are taken to an amphitheater. And they're told to dress up in the garbs of the gods because this is entertainment, right? They're to put on a story. And there's about 5,000 people gathered to see this story. So give the people a show, dress up as these goddesses. And uh, Felicitas, uh, Perpetua and Felicitas, Felicitas is Perpetua's servant. Uh, they refuse. They so said, we're not, we're not playing your games. And they said, all right. You're not going to wear these robes. You're going to go naked. And so they strip them down, basically. And she's placed under a net with her companions. And as soon as they get out there, uh, there's a bull. And the bull gores one of them, right? And uh, the, the account also describes how when they go out and they're in front of the crowd, they begin to sing. The, 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 uh, the Christians, they begin to sing. And to me, the most powerful moment 
is a moment where Perpetua's servant, Felicitas, is knocked down. She's knocked down by, I believe, by one of the animals that are running around. And she's knocked down. And she's lying on the ground. And I think, I think, Felicitas, she's pregnant. I think she's pregnant. She had just given, she had given birth in prison, right? Yeah, and then she, she had, so yeah, she, she had just had her baby. Man, and there's the scene where Felicitas is lying on the ground and Perpetua walks over and puts out her hand to help her up. Now we just think, oh, that's, that's kind. But Felicitas is a slave. And a slave in Roman society is a non-person, is a thing, is subhuman. And here you have someone higher up in society reaching down to a slave and helping her up as if they were equals. Because in Christ, there's neither slave nor free. Man, that's powerful. And the story goes that uh, many of them are killed. Finally, Perpetua, she's still alive, and, 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 and there's a gladiator that has the job of killing her, finishing her off. And he's, he's just so overwhelmed by what he's seen that he can't even hold the sword steady. And the story is, is that she holds the sword for him, and she goes, finish it. Now, it's a difficult story for our Western years to hear. It's a difficult story for me as a dad, as a parent. Uh, man. But it's a picture that Perpetua cared very little what she would lose in light of what she would gain. And her courage affected people around. And, and, and it's not long. It's not long after that. I mean... As Christians, you know, as people witness how Christians behaved in, in the middle of all this, that people begin to lose their appetite for the games, for the arenas. Because they're convicted by what they saw. So again, the question is, in, in our life, in how we live our life, do we live our life in such a way, such a salty life that people are convicted um, by how they're living? Yeah, it's a big question. Or do we try to blend? The third, third area is this, is that Christians live counterculturally. Christians, Christianity threatened the all-pervasiveness of Roman Empire, of the Roman culture. Again, the Roman Empire was quite tolerant towards religion, prided itself in this. But they were okay, they were tolerant so long as you played ball. As long as you worship the Roman gods, the civic gods, the emperor, hey, on your own time, do whatever you want. But the uh, Christians, the way they lived, always pushed back against that. Um, Christians were reviled by the Romans because they would not bow their knee to Rome. They would not say Kaiser Acurius. And people would be like, what's the big deal? Everybody's saying it. Just say it. And they're like, no, we can't. There's only one Lord. There's only one Curios. And it's not Caesar. I'm sorry. And you have to realize this is a time where everywhere you look, you see 
images and reminders of the all-pervasiveness of the Roman Empire. And whenever, here's the thing, whenever you push back against what everybody, whenever you push back or stand apart from what everybody is doing, is going to create resentment. Like if you're a Christian and and you and you don't get sucked into consumerism. You don't feel like you have to buy in order to feel good about yourself. That stands out. Um, there's lots of different ways. Whereas Christians, whereas we just say we're not buying the game, we're not playing the game. So what are what are some areas of the modern world that the Christian witness could threaten today? What are some things that we could do that would threaten the way of the modern world? Can you think, think of any? It was to say that there is such a thing as truth will cause issues, yes. What else? It's a little thing. It's a little thing, but I know someone who on their Zoom account or on their email signature, they do not add their preferred pronoun. Just saying, I'm not, I'm not buying into that ideology. To say in our culture today that there's male and there's female, that there's two genders rooted in biological sex, is going to make you stand out and and will if a certain bill gets passed land you in prison could land you in prison at least get fined there's others um yeah something to think about and here's the last one christians lived out what they believed and christian viewed their faith as ultimately as you're saying and exclusively true. And to talk about exclusive truth in our world today, that something is simply true, will land you in hot water. And now here's the thing, for the Romans, they found this kind of unsettling. Exclusivity, they found unsettling. Because the Romans are like, hey, lots of gods. Worship our gods. Worship your own gods. Hey, here's the Greek gods. Let's just rename them with Roman names. Um, you know, th- that's what the Romans did. They just absorbed gods from everywhere but for christians they just said no there's, there's one god there's one father and son jesus christ and the gift of the holy spirit that alone is true and that caused problems talking about jesus will cause offense um, people are okay to say jesus is a way to god but to say that Jesus is the way to God. Well, it challenged the Romans intellectuals and it challenges our society today. 
An example, one last example I want to give you is, is Polycarp of Smyrna. who lived between 70 uh, to 155 AD. He gets arrested. And he gets arrested and he gets arrested and the, um, the government leader pressured him to deny Christ and to swear to Caesar. Polycarp, an old man, refused. And I love his response. For 86 years I've been his servant and he has never done me wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? Swear by Caesar's fortune, the proconsul shouted. If you imagine that I will swear by Caesar's fortune, as you put it, pretending not to know who I am, I'll tell you very plainly, I am a Christian. The proconsul threatened, I have wild beasts, I shall throw them to you. If you do not change your attitude, call them. If you make light of the beasts, I'll have you destroyed by fire. While the fire you threaten burns for a time and is soon extinguished. There's a fire you know nothing about, the fire of the judgment to come and of eternal punishment, the fire reserved for the ungodly. But why do you hesitate? Do what you want. And Polycarp has confessed that he's a Christian, the proconsul announced to the crowd. This fellow is a teacher of Asia, the father of the Christians, the destroyer of our gods, who teaches the numbers of people not to sacrifice or even worship. Now, the authorities get mad at Polycarp because he would not bow the knee. To the emperor because he believed Christianity was true. Yeah. Yeah. So let's bring this home. I think, you know, the accusation against Polycarp is telling. He's destroyer of the gods. What a great, wouldn't you love to be known as a destroyer of the gods? <laughs> Mike Clausen, the destroyer of the gods. <laughs> but how we live we're to be destroyer of the gods, destroyer of all the false idols in our, in our culture. And what Polycarp said struck right to the heart of the Roman Empire. He would not yield to the power of the state. He would not bow or play to by the rules. He says, Jesus Christ alone is true. And that's the point, is that to proclaim Jesus will still land us in trouble. You can worship whatever you want. You can even worship Jesus as a moral teacher. But the moment you start talking about exclusive truth, you're in trouble. And so Christians who hold to Jesus, hold to his truth, they still die for their faith. In fact, in the 20th century, more Christians died for their faith in the 20th century than all 19th centuries previous combined. It's estimated that in the year 2000, about 160,000 Christians were killed for their faith. Doesn't make the news a whole lot, does it? 160,000. And the martyrs today are dying for the same reasons that Polycarp, Perpetua, Peter, and Paul died in the early church. If Jesus is Lord and Savior and accepts no rivals, no person, no other religion, no other worldview or government, the Christian faith calls its followers to joyful commitment to the person and the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And we are to remain a peculiar people and the way we live our life ought to bring question marks around us. And so martyrdom involves more than dying. The word martyr 
stems from the word witness. And so to be a martyr involves dying. But in our culture, what does it mean? It means dying to ourself. Dying to all the things that demand our allegiance other than Jesus Christ. And so for the sake of Jesus, we are to die to self, die to ego, pleasure, power, success, the world, and all the things that distract us from Jesus. And so martyrdom is bearing witness to grace, the good news of Jesus Christ. And so I think that's the question. I mean, that must be my challenge this week as I've been preparing this. Is, you know, if Paul says, you know, to live as Christ, to die is gain. What does it mean to live my life in such a way that Jesus is lifted up and the gods of this world are threatened, <laughs> are challenged? So I have in your uh, notes some, some questions I want you to ask yourself this week. Meditate on Philippians 121. Meditate on Philippians 3. Meditate on your life. And ask yourself this question. What shapes your imagination? Is it the reality of Jesus? Or Netflix? I'm always having a go. I, <laughs> last week, I had a guy come up to me after. I preached on Sunday, and I had a go at Netflix. I always have a go at Netflix. Um, just saying, you know, are we being shaped by Netflix? Or are we being shaped by the word? And the one guy came up to me afterwards. I knew the guy from years ago. And uh, he goes, hey, he goes, I'm actually an actor on Netflix. And he is. He's, he's been in a bunch of Netflix shows. I'm like, oh, sorry, man. Uh, but he's an actual Netflix guy. So, um, But what shapes your life? The world or the word? Is there a congruence between what you say you believe and how you live? Now, the early Christians confessed that Jesus is Lord and many suffered from it. What does it mean to confess Jesus as Lord today? And what areas of your life will this land you in hot water? And what price do you desire to pay? Because really, we don't know what price we will pay until we find ourselves in, in hot water. I'd like to think that I'd be really brave and strong. I'm not sure. I hope I would. And then meditate on your death. The Bible teaches us to number our days. How would you like to honor Jesus with your life? What would you want people to say about you? Not that it matters that much, but what would be your desire? How would you want people to remember you? If there's one or two words that this is what I'd like to remember you as. Barry was this kind of guy, right? Irene, she's this kind of person, right? And the other question is, what choices are you facing right now? And how are you going to make these decisions? I shared this before, but I remember meeting somebody at our church uh, who is moving up north. And, um, and they were so excited because they got uh, this new job and a huge raise. And they're like, man... I'll be making twice what I was making here in Coquitlam as I go up north and, and start this new job. And he's taking his family and they're all going. I said, awesome. I said, that sounds really good. I said, what? I said, um, where are the churches like where you're going? Because honestly, I don't even know. I said, so you, that's not a factor in terms of where you're moving your family. 
if there's any good churches. Are there any churches where you're going? He goes, I hadn't really thought about it. But man, I could be making twice and I get a company car. I'm like, okay, that's that. I mean, that is good. I'm not denying that. But what are the factors that went into your decision? Simply that, or were there other factors? Because what's the point of gaining the whole world, right? And losing your soul. Thanks for participating in this class. If you've been engaging in classes online, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.